Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. The Economist. In London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor. This week on Babbage, we talk to programming prodigy Vitalik Buterin, the inventor of Ethereum. It's a cryptocurrency designed to be like Bitcoin, only better. I like the idea of sort of 12-year-olds potentially being able to build the next financial system and so forth. And, you know, that's a large part of what attracted me about blockchain technology. And then I started uh, to realize the potential of this concept of blockchain 2.0, this concept of using the underlying technology that's originally behind the Bitcoin currency for all these other applications. And I know that's where Ethereum came from. We'll be hearing about Ethereum later on. But first, we turn to drones causing chaos in our skies. With me to discuss this is Paul Markilly, our innovation editor. Paul, this week a drone crashed into a plane near London. What happened exactly? Well, this was an incident on April the 17th when a British Airways uh, flight from Geneva uh, was uh, coming into approach to London Heathrow uh, when it was hit by an object, the pilot believes. I mean, the police were investigating, but it does seem that it was a small drone. The plane landed safely. Aircraft wasn't but hardly damaged at all and was allowed to continue flying. But the trouble is we, we never really know what a small drone impacting on an aircraft could do. I mean, an airliner is one thing. They're designed to fly and survive bird strikes, as we know, even though occasionally they have to land on a Hudson when the, when the engines are taken out by uh, Canada geese. They can survive, but a small light aeroplane or a helicopter could be a different matter. And because a drone, unlike a bird, has got metal parts in it, including lithium polymer batteries, which would have a tendency to uh, burst into flame. So what are people worried about? They're worried about the impact on the windscreen about something going into the engines, what sort of thing? It could be the engines or it could indeed be the cockpit. Nobody really knows and the British Airline Pilots Association would like some sort of tests carried out to try out. I mean, with birds, they fire frozen turkeys into the jet engines to see if they survive. So not quite sure how they would do it with drones. And of course, it depends on the size of the drones because we have drones that are tiny little insect-like things that wouldn't make 25 feet above the ground to up to 25 kilos and above. So there's a whole different range of these things. So what can we do about it? Because this isn't the first time this has happened. There have been a few other incidents of this around the world as well. What what does this mean we need to do about regulation of drones? Yes, there's been a large number of near misses and reports by pilots of drones being operated in the vicinity of aircraft. Well, the first thing is there are rules. Both America and Britain and some other countries do have rules. You're not supposed to fly drones at airfields. You're not supposed to exceed a certain height. You're not supposed to let the drone go out of your line of sight so that you can see it all the time. And, and so there are rules. So enforcing the rules is the first thing. The second thing uh, is that there could be some technology could help here. What sort of technologies can help here then? There are a number. One is uh, what's called geo 
geofencing, and this basically uses the satellite navigation system in the drone to be programmed so that it should not fly in sensitive areas like airports or over military areas or nuclear power stations. Another idea is like a, a virtual leash; it kind of locks onto the user and just won't fly beyond a certain height. Whatever, and that's that's okay for sort of commercial or smaller type drones. Now, of course, there is a registration system as well, which America has introduced, which can be done online, and that's a good idea. That should make people more sensible. And then, in addition to that, NASA is working on some ideas which would be probably more appropriate for the bigger commercial drones、uh, that companies use for things. Now, these already have to be registered, and the operators already have to show some competence in operating. Operating larger commercial drones. Well, something I've always wondered about this is people have had radio-controlled planes for years, and drones are basically radio-controlled helicopters. Why did we never have these problems with the planes in the old days? Because it was perfectly possible then for people to fly them over airfields and crash them into aeroplanes. Indeed, I mean there have been a few instances, but generally that's a community of hobbyists who are organised into clubs and have their own training schemes and their own award schemes, so that you have a sort of Uh, you know they have a license scheme. You,、uh, they have rules and regulations about how high you can fly these things. They work with the aviation authorities、uh, already on established routes. They are sort of enthusiasts, and it's in their interest, just as it would be for commercial operators, to fly by the rules. The problem is people who either don't know or deliberately want to break the law. They're the much harder group to get to and police. So are we going to see a sort of drone arms race? I mean, I think we did a story a few months ago about a drone that catches other drones in nets. So we're going to need to use those sorts of approaches to monitor airfields. I think we will. We might well see drones that are capable of monitoring, chasing after, and as you say, even catching other drones. But then there's one other thing we ought to take into this account of what's going on here. You know, drones are sort of hot at the moment, but will they become like the Rubik's cube or the Tamagotchi? And the sales will eventually fade and just end up in the hands of enthusiasts. Well, of course, Rubik's cubes came back, but yes, perhaps drones will fall from grace. Thanks very much for coming on the show, Paul. That's a pleasure. Don't forget, if you have anything to say about this week's show, you can find us at EconSciTech on Twitter and on our Facebook page at The Economist. Last week we talked about how to make better maps for self-driving cars. One of our commenters, Chris Allen, said on Facebook that he was convinced that you still need a human in critical situations. Suppose he wrote, "You're driving down the freeway and a mattress falls off a truck that's in front of you. Does the car realise what just happened and take evasive action? Does it slam on the brakes?" It's a good point. I wonder whether mattresses will prove to be a bigger problem for self-driving cars than maps will. Last week we also talked about how employers can be more accommodating towards people with autism. Another commenter, Lindsay Chain, wrote that it's all about matching skills to the correct job. I've been fortunate to work with many autistic adults who often have brilliant talents. Thank you for your comments, and do let us know what you think of this week's show. Now let's talk about a digital cryptocurrency that allows direct transfer of value with no banks or other middlemen. Instead, every transaction is recorded in a shared public ledger called a blockchain, whose integrity is maintained by a network of computers provided by an army of volunteers. You may think I'm talking about Bitcoin, but no. I'm talking about Ethereum, another cryptocurrency that's growing fast. Ethereum is a planetary-scale computer powered by blockchain technology. 
Ethereum differs from Bitcoin in several interesting ways. For one thing, unlike Bitcoin, whose creator is unknown, we know who created Ethereum. It was 22-year-old programming prodigy Vitalik Buterin who joins us today. Vitalik, what gave you the idea for Ethereum? I actually first discovered Bitcoin two years before Ethereum back in 2011. First, actually, my dad told me about it. I thought there's no way this is going to work, but then I heard about it again on the internet, so I figured, okay, I might as well check it out. And immediately, I got interested. I uh, really liked,、uh, I guess, what you could call the accessibility of the system. How just about everything with this kind of、uh, new financial infrastructure is accessible to regular developers. Working on their laptops, you know, all the way down from the money, all the way up to you know how people use it, what people use it to buy and sell, and so forth. And at some point, I even ended up kind of delving into the cryptography and actually making my own command line Bitcoin wallet, and that felt really cool. It was kind of like a sort of Jedi making his own lightsaber experience. That was when I just kind of realized just how you know powerful, just how convenient this sort of way of doing things is, and I think. There are these sort of ideological values inside of it. Some of them are kind of a bit hard to describe in one word. That I've just always felt were you know really nice things to have accessibility both to users you know whatever country they're in and to developers. You know I like the idea of sort of twelve year olds potentially being able to build the next financial system and so forth. And you know that's a large part of what. Attracted me about blockchain technology, and then I started to realize the potential of this concept of blockchain 2.0. This concept of using the underlying technology that's behind, originally behind the Bitcoin currency for all these other applications, and you know, that's where Ethereum came from. You know, there's Bitcoin the currency, but then there's the underlying blockchain technology, and that could actually be used for a whole bunch of stuff other than just currency. So, what does what does Ethereum do that's different from that? I thought that they weren't approaching the problem in the right way. I thought they were kind of going after individual applications. They're trying to sort of explicitly support each one in a kind of Swiss Army knife protocol. And I、uh, thought that、uh, there was a better way, which was that you have a programming language. Or a similar programming language to the kind that you might have, you know, an Android that all the apps are written in. And the idea is that instead of creating a device that just does a specific number of things, you have a device that understands and supports this programming language and whatever people want to do. So essentially, it's a blockchain that programs can sit on top of. And so I, it's as if I can write an app for a blockchain. Can you give us a concrete example of something that people are doing with Ethereum that maybe you couldn't do with Bitcoin? You can use the blockchain to, let's say, track shipments. So you can. Have a system where you know you would automatically put a record into the blockchain every time some product moves to some particular port, to some intermediate destination, to the destination. You can also use the blockchain to transfer money. Now the interesting one is you can have what's called a smart contract, a program that says when this shipment arrives over here, then automatically transfer the money at that particular point in time. Outside of the financial sphere. Identity management, just to give one example. So this sort of tagline of you know sign in with Facebook, but without the Facebook, is there's a, at least a couple of groups that are trying to do something like that. Now, sometimes at the Economist, we like to liken Bitcoin to Napster, the original peer-to-peer -peer music trading system, which of course got shut down, was illegal, but it showed people that it was possible to、uh, do this new thing called peer-to-peer -peer architectures, and that led eventually to to BitTorrent and eventually to Spotify. What do you think of the idea that、um, that Bitcoin Is sort of like Napster, and even if it doesn't survive, that it sort of paved the way for people to do a better version of the same underlying idea with.
with things like Ethereum. You know, if you talk to someone who's just a pure Bitcoin person, they'll tell you that, well, no, it's actually that David Chom's eCash and all those others were the Napster and the other bits weren't. But in practice, it's, you know, not nearly so simple because... Like, I don't think that Bitcoin is going to fail. I don't think it's going to disappear. But at the same time, it's very clearly not going to be sort of the backbone for the entire world with, you know, absolutely everything decentralized running on top of it in some shape or form. And is that your ambition for Ethereum? That could happen. But at the same time, you know, we're completely prepared for sort of more realistic scenarios. But ultimately, you'd like it to be a sort of internet for money. I do think that it goes uh, broader than finance. So there's obviously a lot of financial applications, but at the same time, you know, there might be some applications that might get their own ledger, but, you know, there's just so much different stuff that people are doing with blockchains. You're not going to create a specialized platform for each one. That's what people were doing in 2013. They failed. So if Ethereum gets to be the blockchain that's there for, you know, all of the other stuff, all of the 10,000 different things, that big long tail that, you know, there isn't one particular specialized system that's for, then that's an outcome I'd be very happy with. Thanks very much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Well, that's all for this week. You've been listening to Babbage. For more news on science and technology, visit economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.